Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, Cornerstone, and welcome to our service here, first Sunday of June. We welcome all of you, Cornerstone family. We welcome you who are visiting with us today. And trust that you're able to feel at home. You're in your kitchens and your living rooms, maybe driving. And so, uh, uh, again, we count it a joy to be able to gather together through this means. I have a question for you. Have you ever thought of what it would be like to be the chief chef at Buckingham Palace? I mean, what would it be in regard to your qualifications in order to be that chef there? Uh, obviously, you would have to be very good and qualified in your cooking abilities, an expert in your culinary arts. You would have to have the ability to prepare any dish at any given time and bake elaborate cakes and all kinds of goodies if you were the chief chef at Buckingham Palace. You would be overseeing dinner upon dinner, uh, dozens of people, hundreds of people, uh, maybe even more throughout the year. But, you know, uh, there is also another element, and that is that you would need to possess a cultural sensitivity and a knowledgeable idea of social customs. For instance, it would be a diplomatic disaster if the prime minister of Israel visited Buckingham Palace and for breakfast you served him bacon and eggs. It would be a disaster if a Muslim head of state was offered an alcoholic beverage. You know what I'm saying? You have to understand the customs of the different people that are visiting. A misunderstanding of another's religion or culture or their customs could lead into a very personal offense. And I would dare say wars have been started over less than that. Not only is cultural offense something verbal, but it's also nonverbal. Let me give an illustration. For instance, if I do this, if you can see me, if I do this, what does it mean here in Canada? It means, no, 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 I'm not the fawns on happy days. No, no. If I do this, it means good. Okay, everything's all right. We're good. However, in other countries, if you do that, that is one of the most obscene gestures. You just don't stick your thumb up. Um belching after dinner. Okay, now here in Canada, if you're with people, if you're by yourself, who cares? But if you're with people, if you belch after dinner, that's considered extremely rude and unmannerly in Canada. But there are some countries that unless you belch, I mean, let her go at the end of a meal, you've actually offended the host. That'd be kind of a fun country to visit, wouldn't it? Uh Thailand, if, you're, if you are sitting down and you know how we cross our legs, if you cross your legs and, you, and your foot is pointed towards another person, it's considered a terrible insult. You don't cross your legs and your feet aren't to point at anybody. Um, the sole of your foot represents that you see yourself as higher than them. If you expose the sole of your foot to the Thai people, the foot is the most despised part of the body. I once heard of an occasion 
where an entire second floor of a two-story building was evacuated before the king of Thailand could enter the first floor. They had to get rid of everybody on the top floor. If they hadn't, the king would have, in essence, been under their feet, which was unthinkable for his rank and nobility. Culture and habitat. Uh, let me give another illustration. It's true with our animals. Uh, if you went to the Toronto Zoo, at our Toronto Zoo, they have crocodiles and alligators. Now, they're not indigenous to Canada. They're out of their habitat. We've given them a false habitat. On the other hand, if you go down to Miami, you'll see in their zoo, a polar bear. Polar bear is not indigenous to Miami. Polar bear is out of his habitat. You see, there are habitats. We have a cultural habitat. We understand that. Now, I want to take you to the scripture we're doing today. And again, we're doing doing life together. And we've been talking about worship. What does it mean to worship? Sometimes we've reduced worship in the significance of what it is. And so we've been talking about worship. Today, the text is Psalms 22, verse 3. And it's very simple. I'm taking it from uh, the New King James Version or the uh, English Standard Version. God inhabits the praise of his people. Note the word inhabits. You have to ask the question, where does God habitat? Where does he live? Where does he abide? Now, theologically, God is everywhere present. He lives in spirit. But the scriptures actually talk of his manifest presence, where he chooses to manifest, where he chooses to demonstrate himself. And we in our songs, we sing that all the time about, God, we want your presence. We just sang that just a few moments ago. We desire your presence, Lord. But here's the question. Where does God actually habitat? Where does he desire to be? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking of the altars of Abraham. And those were the earliest references to worship. The altars represent something. And then we went to the book of Exodus, and we talked about that the fundamental reason that the children of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrew children, left the promised land, it was deliverance, yes, but the call was to go and to worship. The core of deliverance is to worship God, and that resounds to us today. So today I want to continue on, and the scriptures we're going to use today are touching on Exodus. We're going to touch, of course, on Psalms. We're going to spend most of our time in the book of Revelation. Habitat, it speaks of natural environments. Our English word, habitation, has various Hebrew and Greek word counterparts. Habitation means dwelling, house, settlement, a place of rest. All of us have a habitat, a place to hang our hat, to rest, to hang out. And God does likewise. It might surprise you that God's habitat is not always where we think it is. If I was to ask you, where do you think God's habitat is? I dare say some would say, well, heaven. But actually, according to Scripture, he chooses to live in the midst of his people. Interesting, isn't it? Not long after the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 25, 8, 
Let's look at it. Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Okay, did you see that? A sanctuary for me that I may habitat among them, that I can habitat with them. You see, it was God's idea to hang out with his people. It was not our idea. God says, I want to dwell among you. Now, not only did God ask Moses to make a place, but if you go down to the very next verse, let's read the next verse too. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. God went one step further. He says, I don't just want to habitat among you. So build this tabernacle, this sanctuary. It's a dwelling place. But he says, I'm going to give you the detailed pattern, the detailed instructions how to do this. So God was setting up what the environment would look like if he was to dwell among us. If it was to be an acceptable dwelling place, what would it look like? Now, this is valuable to ask these questions. Where does God habitat? What does the dwelling place that he desires look like? Those are good questions. In other words, as a holy God, he can't just dwell anywhere. There needs to be a construction of the correct environment. Now, you can learn a lot about a person by visiting their home. If you were to come into Lori and my home, it wouldn't take you but a few minutes, and you would learn a lot about us as you make your way in and in through the dining room into our living room. You would learn about us just by what we have in our home. Your home speaks of you. You would go to my office. You would learn about me by going to my office. If I went to your home, if I went to your workplace, I would learn quite a bit about you. We learn about each other by our taking a look at our dwelling places. So let's go to Revelation 4. John, the disciple. In Revelation, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Christ. He is revealing himself, and he's revealing what it is to have a picture of our heavenly habitat. And as we get a picture of God's habitat, his place of dwelling, it's a picture of how God chooses to dwell among us. Again, our text today, he dwells in the praises of his people. So what does that habitat in the praises of his people, why does he choose and what does it look like? And we can get some understanding in Revelation. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 4, and John here takes us to the house of God into, if you would, the heavenly tabernacle on a guided tour to reveal how we can today establish a place whereby he might dwell among us. We often sing our songs, O Lord, come and dwell among us. May your presence be here. Uh, we talked of the song a moment ago, and bend at knee I come. I worship you in spirit and in truth. Come, O Lord, come and have your place with me. But here in Revelation 4, we get a tour of what that habitat looks like. Revelation 4, let's read it, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, I want you to look at the very first part of that verse. After this, 
It refers to after the seven messages to the seven churches. John crosses in chapter 4 the threshold of heaven. The very first thing John sees is the throne, and the Lord is sitting on it. Initially, this is all he sees, and he's enamored with this throne. This is verse 1 and 2. As he stands the threshold and he beholds the throne, he's undone. He's in awe of him who sits on the throne. His eyes fall on the glory of God. He completely arrests John's attention as he beholds his majesty. I want to share four things that we can learn, I think, from the book of Revelation regarding where does God dwell? Again, our theme is we worship him. But God dwells in the midst of a people who worship him. But what does that look like? Let's break it down. Here we go. Number one, we see in this first verse, giving God the throne. The first thing John sees in heaven is the Lord sitting on the seat of authority. God's habitation is the place of power and might and authority. If God is going to reside in your and my house, if he's going to reside in our heart, we must recognize he has authority. He is God and God alone. He is majesty and majesty alone. We worship him. He is master. He is king. He is my Lord. The first commandment that he gave of the Ten Commandments was, have no other gods before me. He alone stands. There's, he alone is God. And so on the throne, he is master. He is Lord. He is king. The first thing to realize the habitation of God, as John saw in heaven, was he alone abides on the throne. He occupies the throne. Therefore, to the question some ask, why am I not growing spiritually? Could it be because you've not given God the habitat of the throne of your heart? You've got other things that have dethroned him. Maybe it's you on the throne. You are living for you. You're living for yourself. But maybe we are lacking spiritual vitality because God's not on the throne of your heart. We've not made the throne to which he can dwell in your life. If you are lacking spiritually, let's examine, is he on the throne of my heart and my life? Giving God the throne. The second thing we see is found down in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Because after John's eyes begin to adjust to the splendor of him who sits on the throne, he begins to see what's around the throne. There are 24 thrones surrounding the throne with 24 robed elders crowned with gold crowns sitting on them. Then we pick it up in verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, here's what they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then down to verse 11, they continue, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. If God is going to dwell in your life on a permanent basis, we need to provide not only to recognize he is on the throne and him alone, the throne of our lives. 
But secondly, we need to provide God a holy place. Did you see what they said here? It was holy, holy, holy. They were speaking out how holy he was. God's home is a place of holiness. Now, holiness, that's a word we don't use every day. Holiness means here completeness. It means holiness. It means pureness. Many times we expect him to dwell where there's uncleanness. We expect him to dwell where there's rebellion or lust or worldliness. We expect him to dwell there too. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point these things out to us so that we might surrender them to God's authority. The authority of saying, God, I provide you my life, a holy place acceptable for you. Now, we are not naturally holy, but the Holy Spirit helps us to be able to be washed and cleansed and to be changed and to be more like him so that he can dwell among us. So not is he on the throne, high and lifted up, that he is Lord of your life, but he dwells where we provide a life that has, is a life not of impurity, not of immorality, not of uh, you know, selfish ambition, but a life of holiness. The third thing we see here is it's important to give God our thanksgiving. We not only provide him a life that is transformed and holy, but we give him thanksgiving. When John looked into heaven, he noticed that the throne, surrounded by an atmosphere of holiness, there was also an atmosphere of thanksgiving. He watches and he listens as the four living creatures in Revelation 4.9 begin to cry out, glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Thanksgiving on your behalf is significant part of God's habitation. If God is to dwell among us, then there needs to be the spirit and expression of thanksgiving to him. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I like what the hymnist Thomas Chisholm expressed so beautifully in that hymn that is a sacred hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Give God your thanksgiving. We need to give him the throne of our hearts. He dwells there. We need to let him sanctify us. Let him purify us. Give him holiness, completeness, purity. He dwells there. He can't dwell in unholy places. He's a holy God. Thirdly, give him your thanksgiving. And then the last I want to share is give him your amen. Now, I just don't mean A-M-E-N, amen. We go to Revelations 5.14. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, did you note that? 
The living creature said amen, amen to all the things that were done, amen to who he was, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You see that at the amen, there was worship taking place. The word amen is intimately tied with worship throughout the Bible. It's a powerful word, amen. Amen means to be in agreement with, to be in harmony with. Amen means so shall it be. I often will, when others are praying, because when people are praying and you are in a group, you need to be in a prayer of agreement. So if there's a number of you praying, one's leading out loud, the rest of us need to be in agreement. That's why it is okay. As a matter of fact, I expect it. I expect to hear people saying, amen. Yes, Lord. May it come to pass. Listen to the words that are prayed when somebody is praying, and then speak the amen. And it doesn't have to be A-M-E-N. It is all the reference. It is, I agree with that. I come alongside. We declare that in your name. That's what amen is meaning. And when others are praying, you will hear me in the room saying amen. Zoom is really tough because sometimes I take over. If I'm on Zoom, somebody else is praying. I just, all the people can hear is amen. And yes, Lord, let it be. Because I'm declaring the truth of amen means radical obedience. That's what it means. Radical obedience. Such obedience is at the heart of worship. It's not just that we acknowledge him, but we radically obey him. Do whatever it takes to come unto obedience to our Lord. We've grown up in a society today, movies and internet, leisure, entertainment. We are entertainment-oriented. And it's affected, I think, our understanding of worship. For many, worship has slipped from God's holy habitat to a feel-good experience. Too many times we are re setting. We are reinstating an environment we, with whether it be their music or, or prayers or liturgies or different things, and it becomes about how do I feel? How many times maybe has someone left the service? Or maybe you're watching today on Zoom, and you say, well, the music was, the music was really good today, or the music was just right, or, or the music didn't do anything for me, or the message stirred my emotions. But you know, it's, that's not worship, though. It's not worship. Uh, we feel that when we've been stirred, we feel when the music's been right, when there's a feeling, goosebumps, hairs on end, we were able to sway. We feel that that's worship. But might I suggest that simply is a, a symbol of worship. It's not worship. It's not worship. Worship, listen, is all about God himself. It's all about worth. W-O-R-T-H. Worth him. It's about him. It's not about the, it's not about the platforms. You know, our, our churches across this nation are, no, hardly anybody's on the platforms today. But that has absolutely nothing to do with worship. Because worship is, are you ascribing worth to him? So when we were doing songs, whether it be a guitar, or whether we just sang with our voices, or we just prayed when, when Elaine led us in prayer, that's worship. We are ascribing worth to God, and he dwells in those places where worth to him is brought before him. Worship is all about God himself and must always point to the cross of Jesus Christ, him crucified, resurrected, and salvation. 
Too many are allowing, listen, too many are allowing the means of worship to eclipse the object of worship. We've allowed the trimmings to take place of him who sits on the throne. May it never be among us that after we've been a part of a worship experience where it's been a corporate time, that we talk about how it made you feel. May we instead be talking about that we have met with God, that we brought our, <laughs> we brought our praise to him. We brought our givings to him. We brought our heart to him. We brought our thanksgiving to him. We brought our amen to him. Radical obedience to him. Worship. Anything less is a form of idolatry. So going back to what we shared two weeks ago, Genesis, Abraham was building altars. They were representation of worship. But in Genesis chapter 22, and we mentioned it two weeks ago, but I want to come back to this now. It's the story of where you have Abraham and this dialogue with God, and Abraham is asked to offer his son Isaac as a living sacrifice to God, to go up on Mount Moriah. So Abraham turns to the men standing near him in Genesis 22, verse 5. He says, I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. Now, I just want, can you, let's go back to that. Can we take a look at that again? I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship. Did you, it didn't say we will build an altar. It didn't say we are going to do a sacrifice. He used the word worship. We will worship and then return. Out of obedience, Abraham prepared an altar, but the altar was not simply an altar of sacrifice. It was an altar of worship. And just before he would slay his boy, God, of course, stopped him. And with that event, Abraham passed the test, and God knew it. The test? What was the test? God knew he had Abraham's heart. Then in verse 18, God says, because you have obeyed my voice, then God went on to affirm his covenant with Abraham. Because you have obeyed my voice. Did you note the worship is connected to his obedience? We do it. When we worship, it's not a song. It's not simply a prayer. It's not simply a thought. Worship is an act. It's a truly a radical act of obedience to him placing him on the throne of our hearts, that we give him our thanksgiving, that we offer to him the place of amen, and that our lives would be transformed, a holy place for him. Extravagant worship. I believe God is calling us to extravagant worship. May we be people of extravagant worship. And sometimes we have to say no to things that are self-serving, to say yes to something that does not seem self-serving, but worships him and him alone. I like the story of King Edward VIII. Some of you were alive when this, well, I don't know how many might have been alive for this. If you're, if you're of the older generation, you might have been alive for some of these things that took place back in 1936. I know my mom is. It took place in the British throne, King Edward III, who took over the British throne 1936. Apparently, King Edward the, sorry, King Edward the Eighth 
Following his coronation as king, uh, he was known to show great compassion for the welfare of the people in England, especially those considered to be underprivileged of the working class. Before becoming king, Edward had met and fell in love with a twice-divorced American woman. Many of you know the story. His romance with Mrs. Simpson soon shook the British Empire and rocked the Church of England. As king, he faced a decision, either to remain as king of England, preside over the affairs of the vast British Empire, to reside as king on the throne, or to abdicate the throne for a woman he loved. That was the choice. In his now famous radio broadcast to the empire, he made what one has described as the greatest declaration of love in history. I don't know, but here's what he did say. I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And with those words, he walked away from his throne and later would get married. In other words, to Edward VIII, love meant more to him than title, position, wealth, or fame. And it's in that place, when we begin to talk of a habitation of God, what is it that I give up in order for the one I love? Extravagant love validates an extravagant sacrifice. You know the story in the New Testament, the, the prostitute who had the alabaster of fragrance, who, who uh, extravagantly broke it and worshiped Jesus. Extravagant love costs us everything. I invite you, would you with your heart, with your, with your, with your life, absolute unconditional obedience of heart and will, become a people of worship? It's not something you do. It's something you are, and it's because of who he is. So before we close, I just ask the question, is he firmly on the throne of your heart? If not, whatever's threatening his lordship, would you just do what it takes? Just if you know what it is, things that are, are threatening his lordship in your life, let him be the throne. Secondly, if there are things that you are compromising in your faith, Holy Spirit is nudging you that you, he requires a holy place. He's a holy God. If you are feeling spiritually insensitive, maybe there's other things there that he can't occupy that place so that you would know him. Maybe it's a place of thanksgiving. We just need to give all our praise, all our honor, all our glory to him that we might say amen. Radical obedience. Yes, Lord, I'm firmly before you, committed to you. Just as Abraham was Isaac, so I am to you. There's a song we're going to sing in just a moment. The song is, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, it's taken from Revelation. It's called the Revelation song. Sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Not simply was, but today, his holiness. 
With all creation, I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are, you are my everything, and I will adore you. So, Father in heaven, I just pray for each one who has joined us today, our church family today. Oh, God, help us to make a habitation that you might come and dwell among us. Lord, you chose, you desire to live among your people, but you decreed a certain habitation. Just not anything does. And Lord, as we've examined what it takes, as John beheld what it looked like in the heavenly throne room, Lord, you desire that to be in our lives. I pray for each one of us today, right here, right now. Oh God, we freshly commit our lives as a holy habitation that you might abide with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.